for all you've done for us. We are grateful. We look forward to that day when you come back and you make things right in this crazy world that we live in. Thank you so much that um, we can stand in your love. We don't have to fear, for you have things under control. Thank you for caring for us, loving us, and we're, op- we're glad for this opportunity to be together. In Jesus' name. you. (laughs) It's good to be with you. Uh, And I really do really love you and appreciate you. Thank you for your prayers this week. It is well with my soul. I don't know it's going to be well with my voice, but we're going to give it our best shot today. Uh, I thank Pastor Simon for his excellent sermon. As usual, last week, he does a great, great job. So thank you. And we have to thank him for the new video projectors. Look at this. (laughs) You cannot believe the difference when he had the new one over here on Wednesday or whatever, and the old one, which was good, over here. It was like you needed sunglasses. It was so bright. And so uh, thank you, Simon, for your great work on that, working so hard and changed light bulbs and everything that goes along with it. So thank you so much, so much for for all that. I really, really appreciate that. Um, so as uh, Simon said, it kind of a little bit of the schedule. Next Sunday, I will finish the book of Ruth, and I will f- follow up and get that. Um, then the next three Sundays, just so you know, in August, just so you're aware of all this, <clears throat> it's on your sermon outline in the bulletin there too. Information's there. Um, I'm going to ask you to be here. I will be on vacation, and I'm um, looking forward to a little bit of time away. And we'll be in Lake City. And just so you know, we went to Lake City last time. We only went for 24 hours, okay, over July 4th. That was just to get my grandkids up for the July 4th celebration. So now we're really going to go, you know, for however many hours are in a week. 168? Does that sound about right? Yeah, you're going, I don't know. It's just Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Is that good? Yeah, uh-huh. 24, 7 times 24 168. That's right, Okay. So here's the schedule. Um, Don Worthington will be preaching on the 7th. And then on the 14th, Bill Carson will be preaching for us. And then on the 21st, Don Worthington will be here. Or not Don Worthington, Doug Loring will be here. And that's the day we have the wills and, and trust seminar. You want to sign up for that. A number of people have already signed up. Good job. Uh, and he'll be speaking that morning in, in regard to wills and trusts and finances and those things to handle them well. Be great stewards as we're called to be. And looking forward to that. Now, each of these men have served, they've been pastors. Uh, Don only has about 55 years of pastoring and loving on us. And Bill, I think about, what, 38 years? Where are you at, Bill? 38 years serving as a pastor. And Doug Laurie, um, he's been um, in ministry since he's about 20. And uh, he'll be turned 70 this year, I believe. And so uh, he's been doing ministry all these years. So believe me, they have some great things to share with you. So please come and be here and support them and share together and learn from them. It's part of what we want to do. We talked about Ruth being a story of, of goodness and of grief and of grace and of guidance. We talked about that as we've gone through this. It's been a delight to share it with you. 
Um, I look forward to even sharing next week as we try to finish out. So let's look at chapter 4 and where we're at here. You will notice... Somebody bought me some bookmarks, so I know where Ruth is at now. There's 14 of them right here to be able to get that thing open. So we're in good shape. <clears throat> Thank you to whoever did that. I can find it now. All right. I'm going to get this thing done so I have a voice for the second service too, right? Chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. Grab a Bible, tablet, phone, whatever you got to open it up so you can read it too. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, <clears throat> Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he, the redeemer, first redeemer, said, I'll redeem it. And Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. <coughs> so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Lemelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malan. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Your witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. <coughs> Just so you know, Make sure you know. Last week, Simon was already scheduled to preach. I think he might have told you that. I don't know. It wasn't I didn't call him on Saturday night and said, you got to do a sermon, okay? He was scheduled to preach. God worked that out very well. I did come at 11.30 and led class 101 and did the member meeting that day. So I did I did not have a whole day off quite yet, okay? Now, Sundays are days off for pastors anyway. You know that, right? Yeah, so anyway. Just so you know that, then Simon didn't get called. He did a great job, as usual. I did get to hear most of that sermon when I came. All right, as we think about it, here's the plot. We go through it again, right? We've got the, the need. Needing to get food brings a move. The move brings the deaths. 
The deaths bring a move, and the move brings help. The help brings marriage. Marriage brings a child, and the child brings a king, and through a king comes Jesus. The last two are next week, so don't miss it. As I thought about it, trying to put things together just as a little bit of an outline, first we see in these first couple verses that Boaz, he acts. In chapter 2, we see Ruth taking action. She says, we need to work, we need to get provided, we need to have food, so I'm going to go out into the fields and I'm going to go do what I need to do to take care of our family. In chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth take action. Naomi knows that there's a possibility that Boaz could be the redeemer, and so she sets up this plan, as Pastor Simon gave last week, and says, this is what you should do, and Ruth follows through and takes on and puts that action into uh, movement. And now Boaz acts in chapter 4. And as Simon, Pastor Simon uh, pointed out last week in chapter 3, it is a very interesting chapter. Very interesting chapter of what takes place as this kind of proposal comes through. You know, as you were reading through Ruth again this week, as you were reading through Ruth again this week, you probably noticed again that chapter 3 is a very interesting chapter, didn't you? Yes. Uh-huh. You did read through Ruth this week, right? I read through it last night in um, the Christian, in the contemporary English version. I've been reading a different version every week. And it was just, it just brought out so many different things that it highlighted, well, not different, but it highlighted so many different things based on the context. It was really, really helpful to do that. So this week will be your last chance to do that. If you haven't done it yet, get yourself one in. Get yourself one in. Read through the book. It is so helpful. You'll you'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it a lot. So chapter 3 is very, very interesting. But at the end of chapter 3, we read that Ruth returns home to Naomi after this most interesting way of proposing marriage to Boaz at the threshing floor during the night. And Naomi says he's going to act quickly. This is going to happen. This is going to move about here. Now, he might have been a bit, Boaz might have been a little bit slow getting to the marriage proposal, but once he has her permission, he's ready to make it happen. And that's chapter 4. And I remind you, Boaz's name means what? Oh, you don't remember everything I say to you? Swiftness. Remember, Boaz's name means swiftness. Now, he might have been a little bit slow to begin with, but man, once he's got things going, now swiftness kicks in in chapter 4. So there you go, a little bit of just review. You know this, the gates of the city, obviously are where the judges and the leaders of the city would come about, and they would come about to do business and to share together. Um, I would imagine maybe even while they were gathered in the gates of the city, there might just have been a little bit of gossip that goes on too. It just has a tendency to be that. One way to picture that is I read in the newspaper every once in a while that the class of uh, 1963 at Central High School meets every Wednesday to have breakfast at the pantry or something like that. It's kind of that place where they're gathering together. This is something that they do. They come together. Now, what's interesting about it in the gates of the city, what would happen is in the morning, 
people would be going out of the gates to go work because that's where they worked, out in the fields. In the evening time, they would be coming back in. So they knew, Boaz, as he comes to the gates of the city, he knows that people be going in and out. They'll be seeing there those guys gather together as they do to d determine you know, judgments and legal things and business transactions and fun things too. He knows that the possibility is that this Redeemer, probably because he knows him, this is a town of a thousand people, he probably goes to the gate quite often to conduct business. He knows the Redeemer's probably going to be coming back and forth or going out during this time as he comes to the gate that morning. You'll notice that this scene is bracketed by the gates in verse 1. It talks about the gates in verse 11. It talks about the gates too. It's all bracketed by this setting that's before him. So in verse 1, we see that Boaz sets up shop. He comes to the gate, and behold, the Redeemer of whose Boaz is spoken came by. Just happens to come by. Just happens to come by. All right? So what does he do? Boaz invites him. Well, it says then, he says, turn aside, my friend, sit down here. Really, in the Hebrew, it's a command. It's not an invitation. It's like a command. Sit down. All right? And commands can be given kindly. But here he's saying, you need to sit down and sit right here as they come together. And what does the friend do? What does the Redeemer do? He sits down. He knows something important is probably going to happen here. And so he took ten men of the elders of the city. We don't know exactly know why ten. Um, we know that in the Jewish, to start a Jewish synagogue, ten men would have to come together to start a Jewish synagogue. Um, but probably just that was kind of a normal, a normal number that was put together to be able to say, a legal transaction has taken place. Enough witnesses to be able to do that. And he says to those ten men, he says, sit down here. Commands them, sit down here. You don't have a choice. This is going to be important. There's valuable things that are going to take place here, and I need you to be witnesses of what is going to go before us. Now, again, they know each other. These are the leaders of the community. They know each other. They know that things take place and these transactions take place and business takes place and agreements are made here at the city gate. So it's, it's not something that's random all of a sudden happened. It's something that has taken place and now it's very special because of what Boaz is going to be able to do. You see, Mr. Swiftness gets to the business of the day. Because we got some things that we need to work on. So now he explains to them, to the closest redeemer, he says, Naomi is back and she's selling Elimelech's land. <clears throat> the author doesn't tell us this, but obviously he's talked to Naomi. Okay? He's had some kind of conversation with her to know this is what she wants to do. The kinsman redeemer, and I'll, I'll go, I'm going to quote from Another uh, a commentator, commentator, because they're way smarter than I am. They've done way more work on him. But he says this, The kinsman redeemer was responsible for protecting the interests of needy members of the extended family. For example, one, they would provide an heir for a brother who died. Okay, that's in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Secondly, they would redeem the land that a poor relative had sold outside the family. That's in Leviticus 25. 
And third, they would redeem a relative who had been sold into slavery for debts. And that's in Leviticus 25. They go on to say as they're talking about that, and they're looking at the culture and the environment they lived in. Technically, widows could not sell their husband's property. That's found in Numbers 27. However, since in this case, this commentator says, Elimelech had no children, brothers, or uncles, the community apparently gave Naomi the right to dispose of the land. Because she couldn't farm it herself, she had to sell it. And buying it was a part of the Redeemer's obligation to Elimelech. So that gives us a, a picture, a little bit broader picture of the kinsman Redeemer. And Simon went over some of that with you last week. Just a little bit different take from a different commentator. And Boaz says, as he knows what, what Naomi wants to do, he says, you have a right to the land. You're the first redeemer. But if you won't buy it, I will. The redeemer says what? Yeah, I'm in. I'll take it. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Got the cash to be able to do it, the means to be able to do it. I'd like to have that land. And then the surprise. And then the surprise. And one more thing. If you redeem the land, you also take responsibility for Ruth. So you can continue Elimelech and Malan's family line. And their name, perpetuation, is taking place. And in verse 6, the Redeemer says, well, if that's the case, I can't redeem it. Because I'm going to impair my own inheritance. So you can take my right of redemption. Let me go again to another commentator. Boaz has presented the kinsman a dual responsibility. If he agrees to act as the redeemer, he must pay both for Elimelech's land and to support Malan's widow, Ruth. If the kinsman could buy the land without Ruth, then the land would become part of his estate and he would pass it on to his sons in his name. However, if he marries Ruth, then her first son and the land are both reckoned as Malan's. In that case, the kinsman would have paid Naomi for the land and paid to support Ruth, Ruth's son, and her son, but none of that expense would be credited his estate. It wouldn't be his. Worse yet, if this redeemer only had one son, then all the property would be inherited in Malan's name, and in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property, the kinsman would have, would have risked losing his own name not being perpetuated. Now, I, I know that's a lot to swallow, but what he's saying is he couldn't do it because, it, it, as he says, it would ruin my inheritance. I can't take this on because this inheritance would end up going to somebody else. It would go to Elimelech's family, not mine, if I take on this responsibility. That's why he has to say, I can't do this. Because I have my inheritance. It's set up. My sons have their inheritance. But if I take this on, it doesn't become mine. They get passed on through Elimelech in his family, and it's on his side, not on mine anymore. Now, think with me. <clears throat> I think you'd agree with me. That when the first Redeemer says, no, I can't be the Redeemer, and turns his right over to Boaz, that Boaz is secretly saying in his heart, yes, 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 I'll redeem it. <laughs> I'm in. 
this is really good news. I'm glad. He's, now, he's not saying it out loud, of course. But inside, in his heart, he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know that he's really interested in the land, but he's really interested in Ruth. <laughs> right? You know, all of a sudden, that he's an excited man. He's a worthy man. We know that. But now he's excited because he can legally become the kinsman redeemer and take Ruth as his wife. Okay. So last Sunday, Pastor Simon kind of told on himself. He told a little bit of a story of being just a little bit unswift about his relationship with Julie. And, and Julie had to kind of move that relationship on just a little bit more quickly. Good job, Julie. <laughs> it was fun hearing that story. Okay, so it's my turn to tell the story of not being very swift. So, um, Alicia and I started dating, say, February, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, we kept dating. And she wasn't going to the church that I was a youth pastor at. And as we dated just a little bit, I had to say to her, if we're going to continue dating, you're going to need to have to come to my church because they don't let pastors go to other churches on Sunday morning for some odd reason. I don't know why that is, but that's just the way it is, right? And so um, she had grown up in the church, and they'd experienced a little bit of church hurt and uh, had not been back for, this would be, you know, about 10 years or so. And she took that responsibility on, and uh, her brother was back in the church, grandparents were in the church, and aunts and uncles were in the church, and she humbled herself and became, came, came back to, to Amarillo Bible Church where I was youth pastor. And so as we started dating, um, we moved along, and, and uh, July 13th of that year, um, we went up into the mountains and did Breckenridge and the Alpine Slide, and, and I had this unromantic plan to propose to her, and it was very unromantic, but best I could do, maybe. Anyway, so I did propose to her on, on July 13th as my birthday, and uh, she agreed to be my wife. And, uh, but um, inside, for the two or three months before that, she was like, hurry this thing up, hurry this thing up. What's taking you so long? What's taking you so long? Because she knew I was such a fine catch that she didn't want to let me get away. Well, really the problem is I was moving much slower than what she was, all right? So anyway, she did say, she did say um, yes to that. Very interesting. Uh, I can make the story really even longer, but uh, interesting. Um, I called my friend maybe even that night. I was in Denver when that happened, living in Amarillo, but in Denver, visiting friends. And I called my friend Johnny, uh, maybe that night even, and I called Johnny up. Johnny and I had, uh, he started coming to church in, in, um, when juniors in high school, he got saved out of the drug scene, everything else. God radically changed his life. And uh, we had lived together a little bit before I moved to Amarillo. I called Johnny up and I said, hey, Johnny, I'm getting married on December 9th or 19th, I think it was, and I want you to be in my wedding. And he said, Scotty, you can't get married on December 19th. I said, why not, Johnny? He said, because I'm getting married on December 19th. 
I said, you're not getting married December 19, Johnny. He said, yeah, he is. I asked Debbie to marry me the other day. He said, when did you ask Alicia to marry you? I said, today. <laughs> so I had to change our wedding because I had to get my brother from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, my friend from Indiana, my friend from Chicago. I had to get everybody here. So we went to November 26th and got married Friday of, November, of that November 26th. And then I went to Fargo, North Dakota on December 19th or whatever it was to be in his wedding. And it was freezing cold and it was just an ugly day in Fargo, North Dakota in the winter. There's a little bit of our story. So I, too, was not Mr. Swift when it came to asking Alicia to marry me. But, I, you know, once we got things going, you know, July 13th to November 26th, moving pretty good. Got going, yeah. Way to be, Mr. Swift. <laughs> But thank you, Alicia, for choosing me and allowing me to be a part of your life for 39 years now. Grateful for you. You're a tremendous wife. Tremendous wife. Simon's got a good one, too. <laughs> We're grateful. Very, very grateful for how God has put us together. But Boaz, a little bit slow to get into, okay, Ruth, let's have a relationship here, a right relationship. But once he gets the permission... He becomes Mr. Swift, and he gets things done as in chapter 4. Well, the author here, as he writes this, he gives us a cultural explanation here in verse number 7. <clears throat> the words, now this was the custom in former times in Israel, leads us to believe, as I said in my first sermon, that this book was written many years after the story took place. What does it say? Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming sin. What he's saying is, that used to be the way it is. That's not the way it is now. That's what he's communicating there. Because this story was penned many years after the story took place. So he takes off the sandal. There's this taking off the sandal and giving it away in the presence of the witnesses, whether it's a demonstration of a binding legal agreement, the transfer of rights. It, was, it would be like this, if we could picture it in our time. Like in former times, a man was as good as his word, right? And so he said, this is going to be the deal. And he gave that man or that woman a firm handshake and said, that's good. We've got an agreement. It's all good. That's former times. You know how they are today, right? Unfortunately, a man's word is accompanied by legal paperwork. And all that simply means is just like what a clock means to a preacher. Nothing. <laughs> you understand that. It used to be in former times. You say, this is my word, this is my handshake, we got a deal. But that's not the case now. We know that. Boaz redeems. Verse 8. The man says, buy it for yourself. And the sandal was given to Boaz. Here's what that means. We've got a deal, and I've got to get a new pair of sandals. Because <laughs> I only got one. We got a deal. But I got to get a new pair of sandals, because I only got one sandal. So Boaz says to the elders, the legal witnesses, and it says in verse 9, and all the people, I think that as they're doing this deal, a bunch of people have sat down, and they're starting to listen. They're, they're, they're very interested in this. This is the biggest deal of the day. This is let's make a deal, okay? It's right here. And all these people, a bunch of people have joined them as they're listening to what's taking place in front of them. 
They say, Boaz says to the elders and all the people, you've witnessed this. Here's the sandal. I got it in my hand. I bought the hand of Naomi, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Lemelech and all that belonged to Chilean and to Malin. But really, the best part, I got Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead, to keep that name going, the family name going in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. Your witnesses this day. This has taken place. I've got Ruth. I've got the land. Your witnesses, the two purchases I validated by the one sandal I hold in my hand. Here's the evidence. And the witnesses, what do they do? Man, they're excited about what's taken place. They offer three blessings. They hear the words. They see the sandal. The transaction has been made. We're happy for you. And we want to offer our blessing. Blessing number one. May the Lord make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah didn't have any children. Married to Jacob. And then the Lord opened their wombs so that they birthed 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, when we think about this, sometimes these blessings are kind of interesting. We think about Rachel and Leah, there were 12 sons, but they didn't birth all those 12 sons. Because some of Rachel and Leah's handmaidens got involved in that too. And they helped too. So it's really weird. You get this blessing, but you have this two people, who, two ladies, who fought all the time. In jealousy and covetousness. And said, oh, I'm not having enough kids, so let's get my other, let's get my handmaid, let's get our servant involved in this too. Really kind of weird to me. But they saw that as important, the 12 tribes of, of Jacob, to be able to do that. So, but it's the sense of perpetuating. It's the sense of a family. May, may kids come to you now that you have made this decision. Blessing number two, may you, Boaz, act worthily. This is the third time, again, that's a key word throughout the book of Ruth. You find it in 2.1, you find it in 3.11 about Ruth, and you find it now in 4.11. That's a word that you follow as you look at it. You circle that word, you go, because I've seen that word before. It means something here. May you, Boaz, act worthily in this area. I think they're saying this. May, may your worthiness, because he's already been called a worthy man in chapter 2, verse 1. That's who he is. That's his character. Now they're saying, may that continue. May you continue to be worthy in this decision you've made this blessing we give to you. And then the blessing number three, may your house be like the house of Perez because of the offspring the Lord will give you through this young woman. Now this is very interesting too. Chapter three is very interesting, so is chapter four. Here's what one of the commentators says about this. Perez was the father of the most prominent clan of Judah, the one to which Boaz belonged. Perez was a son of a Leverite, union between a man and his daughter-in-law, Tamer. Genesis 38. Weird situation. Or interesting. Should I say? Interesting situation. Just as Ruth and Boaz's marriage is going to follow this Leverett custom. Here's what one of them says about Leverett marriage. The duty of the brother-in-law was to father a male heir with his brother's widow to carry on his brother's name and ensure his inheritance. Deuteronomy 25. Tamer and Judah later bore twin boys named Perez and Zerah. And ironically, out of Perez's line, both King David and later Jesus Christ the Messiah were born. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. 
This is a testament to God's prevailing mercy. The author goes on. For even the most flawed and sinful of men can be used and blessed by God, not because of their merit, but because of God's grace and the power of repentance. Go back and go back and read Genesis 38. The brother-in-law would not do his duty to father a child, the tamer. And tamer takes things into her own hands, as I wrote one place here somewhere. Uh, she, she does some scheming to get the blessing. <laughs> she sets her father-in-law up. And out of that, God shows himself that he can use even the difficult things of life, the goofed up things of life, when people are under his grace and when repentance is involved in it. So you have those three blessings that come from the witnesses that are gathered in. Let me try to finish out in the next 45 minutes or so here. Scott's thoughts as I put them down. What, what can we take from this? Well, they're the same things that we've taken even, even as Pastor Simon used them, talked about redemption, did such a good job of talking about redemption last week. I think about Ruth. I take about this, this woman who makes this choice where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your Lord, your God will be my people. I will stay with you even up to death. I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to leave my people. I'm going to leave my gods. I'm going to leave my way of worshiping. And I'm going to go your way. I'm going to do what I should do. And I'm going to follow you, Naomi. That, that faithfulness is so strong and characterizes her. I think also her turning to one God. She turned away from her God and her ways of religion. And she said, God, the Lord God Almighty, El Shaddai is the one that I should worship and I should be a part of his life. And I'm changing from here and I'm going here to the true God, to the one who truly loves us. I find it interesting to think about her too, that, that she took refuge and wanted to be under the wings of the Lord Almighty. She didn't run away from him. She ran toward him and to get under his wings, to get under his care and his protection. And doing that, Boaz was a part of answering that prayer for her and that concern for her. I think about the Lord and how he's involved in, in this story, true story. His guidance. I remind you that the Lord is always working. We said that about three or four sermons ago. He's always working and often behind the scenes. Follow with me. God's guiding coincidences just happens in the book of Ruth. Chapter 1. Naomi and family just happened to go to Moab to get food. Ruth and Orpah just happened to find husbands while they're there. Her children, Naomi's children. Naomi's husband and sons just happened to pass away. Difficult, of course, but they just happened to pass away leaving them as widows. Naomi just happens to want to go back home because why? The Lord visited his people again and there was food again in the land. Ruth just happens to determine to go back to Bethlehem with Naomi. Just happens. God's guiding, moving this story. Chapter 2, Ruth just happens to end up in Boaz's field. She's just going to go out to the fields and work. She just happens to end up in Boaz's field. And Boaz just happens to come by that day to his field instead of going to play golf that day. Boaz just happens to extend kindness to Ruth 
a foreigner. And Boaz, we find out, just happens to be a relative. Chapter 3, Naomi just happens to know where Boaz would be that evening. Boaz just happens to sleep on the threshing floor, just like Naomi said. And Ruth just happens to end up at his feet. Chapter 4, Boaz just happens to be at the gate when the kinsman redeemer arrives. The primary redeemer just happens to not be able to be the redeemer. And Boaz just happens to be next in line to be the redeemer. You see, the Lord is definitely the one behind the scenes just happening the details of the story. He does that. And he will continue to do that for you, his child. Looking back, look back over your last week. Think back over your last week, this last week that you just went through. How was God guiding things in your life when you were maybe going, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And then you see, you make a decision and, and you go and you look and you go, whoo, hmm. Your guiding hand was right there. I didn't even know that. And yet, you brought that about. I bet you if you look back over here, I bet you could find three to four to five instances of God's guiding hand behind the scenes that, that you had no idea what was going to happen or what to do. And God was guiding and putting things together doing that all the time. And not always behind the scenes. Sometimes he's just right out in front. <laughs> That's the glorious one. Just making sure you know what to do. I, as I'm thinking about that, <clears throat> it's not in my notes, but when Simon was changing the projectors this week, as I was telling you, the good old projector was on here. And the new one was over here. I mean, like I said, you about needed sunglasses to look at this thing. It was so bright. And you know what? Sometimes God's like that. He's present, but it's just a little bit, it's just a little bit blurry. He's behind the scenes. But sometimes, sometimes, it's just brilliant. You just know that was I think there's a picture also in here of this. God is at work, but you know what? He needs us to join him in that work. Aaron, sitting out here. Bunch of medical equipment. Your brothers are with you there. God brought all that medical equipment, but you know what? It's in Oregon. It needs to get here. God had a plan for all that stuff to get together, and Aaron had no idea. No idea. All of a sudden, people are calling him saying, we got all this medical equipment. We got all this medical equipment. But you know what? He's got to get it here. See, God's doing his work, but now Aaron's joining God's team and has been joining God's team. And that's what you've been doing as a child of God. God's doing his work, but he needs us to join with him to get his work done. 
And that's how he works. You see, we have an obligation to follow his guiding. As he leads us, we had the obligation. I haven't given you this quote in a long time, but somebody reminded of me the other day. The only thing more costly than obedience is disobedience. Obedience is costly. We know that. It costs us something to follow Jesus Christ, but it's more costly to disobey Him. The only thing more costly than obedience is disobedience. Thank you, Lord, for how you work in our lives. I think about Boaz, his swiftness. He got done what needed to be done when it needed to be done in chapter 4. took him a while to get there. And for all of us, we know this, procrastination is a close friend sometimes, isn't it? Mr. and Mrs. Procrastination, you know, sometimes they're, they're friends that we need just to separate from from a time, right? But Boaz, when he gets the opportunity, he gets going, and he gets it done. As I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about this. What's something you need to get done right now? Maybe you've been delaying on it. Maybe you've been sitting on it. But there's something that you need to get done right now. You see, you've heard of the tyranny of the urgent. There was a book written on that, a little book written years ago. Tyranny of the urgent. We get done the urgent things when really what we need to do is we need to get done the things that are important. Let's not get wrapped up in the tyranny of the urgent, but let's make sure we stand with the immediacy of that which is important, that which really needs to be done. I face it all the time. My work, all the blogs that I get, you know, I just find myself reading, reading, reading. What I really need to do is I really need to get to a sermon and write a sermon. But yet, you know, that ding, ding, you got email. Y'all know it. We all know it. What's the really important thing that you need to do today to handle, to put into order? Because God has been speaking to you about it, and you need to do it. That's what Boaz did. He handled that. We think about his worthiness and his character. He took care of his workers in chapter 2. We read about that. He provides food for Ruth and Naomi. He doesn't take advantage of Ruth that night at the threshing floor. His integrity and honesty to present to the kinsmen. He probably could have got away with it. But no, he said, I need to present Ruth, I need to present the land and what Naomi wants to do with the land. And I need to be honest about Ruth that he would come alongside. Maybe he could have got away with it. I don't know. But the fact is he was honest about it. He was a worthy man in that. It says, I was thinking about that. How, would, would my friends characterize me as a worthy man? A man of character, of God's character that could be trusted. It would be hard to say anything better of a person that he's a worthy man, a godly, worthy man or woman, student, child, because your character is so much like Jesus. And then, as Pastor Simon pointed out last week, Boaz being the kinsman redeemer, the one who's a, a picture of what Christ has done for us, on our behalf. Jesus came as the Redeemer, and if we allow Him, He can redeem us from our sin and give us a new life like Boaz gave Ruth. A new life. A second chance. 
He's a picture of that. He's a foreshadowing of what Jesus did for us. They're looking for, but we look back. It was a foreshadowing. It was a, a type, as it were, of what Jesus is going to do for us in redeeming us and buying us out of the slave market of sin. Our feet were mired in the mucky clay, and yet he took ourselves and he set our feet. So when we come to know him, he set our feet on the rock. Jesus Christ. Boaz, a picture of that. You see, it will be well with your soul when you follow close to the Lord. When you walk in faithfulness with others like Ruth. When you hear and obey His guiding voice through the Holy Spirit and the Word. You can read the book of Ruth. You can be that, but I've also been informed that we still have a number of daily breads and open windows that will help you in your quiet time with Jesus. Illustrations and pictures and, and stories that will help you follow Jesus more closely. And you know they, they don't do us any good when we get to the end of the month and into the quarter and they're still here. So grab them as you go out. Pick them up. These will help you when you read the book of Ruth this week. And maybe you read a couple of these and you put yourself in there. And many of you use other devotional guides. They're helpful to you. God uses them in our life. But we want to obey. We want to hear His voice through the Word. We want to hear His voice through the Holy Spirit. And then we want to obey Him. And then when we, as Boaz demonstrates, and the Apostle Paul commands, when we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.16. You hear me give this verse a lot. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. We're the child of God. We're children of God. Let us live that way. Worthy of that. That when people see us, they'd say, yep, that person knows Jesus. They may not agree with us, but that person knows Jesus. He's making a difference in their lives. I want it to be well with your soul. I want my soul to be well. I want to follow. I want to, I want to be like Ruth. I want to be like Boaz. I, I want to be like the Lord in his listen to his guiding hand and follow hard after him. And I know you do too. Let's keep going after him. Let's keep walking close to him. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, first of all, for helping me get through this sermon. You're kind and gracious in that. Father, today there might be fears that, that we have, and we want to stand in your love. Perfect love casts out fear. Doesn't mean we're not concerned. Of course we're concerned. But we don't have to live in fear. You've not given us the spirit of fear or timidity, the power of love and a sound mind. And Father, as we see your hand in our life, help us to obey. No matter how hard it is. Just like you were guiding Ruth. Naomi, Boaz, and they obeyed. They followed through with what you were doing in their lives. We want to be worthy, men and women, young people. People that see us, they see the character of Jesus, the character of God Almighty. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for forgiving us when we fail. And thank you for calling us children.
salvation in Jesus Christ.